This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 509 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Jeff Schwerdfeger. Now, Jeff is a veteran firefighter who worked in multiple departments, including Inglewood, California, at the height of some of the gang activity there, and ultimately transitioning to a local county department, where he also joined a FEMA team and responded to many of the country's national disasters. So we discuss a host of topics from the multiple near misses that he had, his own mental health journey, and then how he developed worldwide peer support. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. Now, as a side note, our sponsor, 5.11, has put out an incredible series of interviews as a tribute to the responders of 9.11 and the incredible feeling of 9.12. So I do urge you to go to 5.11's YouTube channel and watch some of those powerful stories. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jeff Schwedfeger. Enjoy. So Jeff, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. And uh, James, I want to thank you so much for having me and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about uh, worldwide peer support and uh, what we've really endeavored to do over the last uh, couple of years. But uh, in essence, um, over the last six months, uh, we've grown exponentially across the country and around the world. And uh, we're, we're out trying to help brothers and sisters, um, primarily firefighters and uh, EMS uh, workers who uh, suffer from PTSD and substance abuse and also mental illness of all varieties. Beautiful. So very first question, it's funny because there seems to be a resounding theme at this location with cockerels in the background. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? <laughs> so I, uh, I'm in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii, um, and we have uh, a few acres here that we're on. We have things called heiaus, which are uh, Hawaiian ancient ruin sites around our property. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of wild chickens, uh, wild pigs, and uh, wild goats that uh, are within our our area. So yeah, we we have lots and lots of wildlife. It's not really indigenous, but um, they're definitely wild wild roosters that uh, are out there just uh, doing their thing day and night. Unfortunately, but yeah, and that and the koki frogs, which also make a lot of racket, but. It's, it's kind of lulls you to sleep, though. It's to get used to it. Beautiful. All right. Well, then I love to start, as you know, chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I have a, an interesting background in more than one way. Um, yeah, so I was born and raised in a small town called Boulder Creek. It's in California up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. 
Um, and, um, yeah, so my birth father, he was a, uh, firefighter and also a police officer. He worked for public safety in the Bay area, um, as was my uh, stepbrother, but I had, um, yeah, birth, uh, blood relatives. I had two brothers, uh, one full sister, one half sister, one stepbrother. Um, and, uh, parents divorced. My mom was a registered nurse. Uh, once again, my father was, uh, in the fire service and also a police officer. Um, they divorced when I was young. Uh, my mom remarried, uh, to a man who started his own business, wasn't in the fire service or police department, probably a good thing for longevity purposes anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I was raised in a fairly normal, uh, family environment. Um, my dad was starting a, a business, so a lot of struggles with finances and whatnot growing up. So I lived in the woods though. We had a river right behind the house and a redwood forest right behind us. So, um, we didn't have internet. We didn't even really have TV to speak of. Um, and so we just kind of made, uh, made do and it was great. I never got bored, never got tired. I had great friends and, uh, just kind of explored the woods and did her things as kids growing up. So it was a very healthy environment. Um, yeah, to go along with that, uh, at a young age, I was exposed uh, to some um, some fire department-related uh, things that had happened. My brother, my younger brother, uh, Michael, uh, God rest his soul, um, we were out playing one day, and he had a bad heart, so he had several open-heart surgeries uh, when he was young. Uh, Dr. Strumway from Stanford University, he was one of the first kids to ever have open-heart surgery at a very, very young age. Um, and, uh, so we had several open heart surgeries. He just got back. I'm just going to tell you this briefly. It's really kind of how I got in the fire service in the first place. Um, I was probably 13 years old, 14 years old at the time. And he had just gotten home uh, from Stanford hospital after open heart surgery. And, um, we decided, uh, to basically have mud ball fights with the neighborhood kids. And uh, of course, all the older kids had the high ground, all the younger kids had the lower ground right next to the creek and we were just pummeling the hell out of these poor kids down below us. And my brother took off running and I was on top of this cliff, chasing him down, throwing mud balls, uh, being the big brother that I was and stepped on a large rock, which broke loose from the top of the cliff, rolled down the cliff and broke his femur <laughs> of all things. The poor kid just got out of the hospital with open heart surgery, breaks his femur. So I ran home. Uh, my folks called the local fire department and they came out with their rescue. They had to do a rope rescue on the side of this cliff. So they extricated my brother, took him to the hospital in a lot of pain. It's before they had hair traction splints, anything of that nature. So we just had to, you know, tough it out. And it's like a 25 mile ride to the, the closest hospital. So we got to the hospital and, um, he was in traction, full hospital bed traction. And he was going to be in traction for over a month. And this is right around Christmas time. So, um, yeah, that was uh, a big thing for me, dealing with the fire department, watching them do the rescue and stuff. So I got uh, pretty intrigued by that. And uh, make a long story longer, um, what ended up also happening is to get my brother home for Christmas. Essentially, my folks had to hire people and a few of the firefighters around the scene helped uh, disassemble the front door of the house and entryway to get the hospital bed into the house so my brother could actually spend Christmas with us because he was in the hospital for so long with a SARS issue. So once again, very inspirational. Um, he was able to spend Christmas and they actually had to move him in a moving van. They had to hire a moving van. There was an air ride moving van to get him home. And it was a big deal. I mean, it was a huge deal. And, um, yeah, once that, that occurred and uh, saw him recover from that, it just kind of inspired me a little bit, you know, and, uh, when I was 16 years old, um, I ended up having the opportunity to uh, test for the local fire department, Boulder Creek fire. And, um, 
yeah, I got hired as a 16-year-old uh, in high school. Um, just basically had my license after I had my license for about a month. I get hired with the fire department as a volunteer. And uh, this is an all-volunteer fire department. Now it's partially paid. But uh, back in those days, it was all-volunteer. This is back uh, 1978, dates back a bit. So I did that for a little bit. Right away, I got my EMT through the local community college program. Uh, I went through my Firefighter One uh, program and enrolled at Cabrillo College. It's a junior college in the Santa Cruz area in Aptos, actually. And uh, ended up uh, actually getting out of high school my last two years and finishing my college degree, uh, DAS in fire science, um, and also graduated from high school at the same time. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a whirlwind from that point onward. Um, yeah, I ended up uh, working for a bit, um, went on numerous, numerous, you know, uh, traumatic calls back in those days, a lot of over-the-cliff rescues, uh, a lot of fatality accidents, um, just a lot of fatalities in general. Uh, we had a whole slew of different things that occurred when I was young, but um, uh, we had uh, the Love Creek uh, mudslides, uh, which were uh, renowned back in the day, um, and that uh, occurred in the early 80s. Um, and yeah, I dug out uh, numerous bodies uh, from mudslides, uh, lots of different tragedies that occurred there. Terrible, terrible stuff. You know, I dug out a lady um, that was taking a nap in her bed when a mudslide came down, took out her bedroom with her kids in the living room. And her kids were screaming and yelling for us to help. And it was just, uh, that resonates in my head to this day. And we dug and dug and dug furiously for about an hour. And I finally uh, thought I was pulling, you know, digging through this wet, wet mud and just kind of up to where chests pretty much in mud that was actually moving at the time. It wasn't the safest thing in the world to do, but grabbed onto something I thought was a root, but it was actually her hand. And um, when I pulled on her hand, you could see her fingernail polish, so I, I knew I found her. So we got her out of there, and I did mouth-to-mouth and CPR on her for about an hour until we hauled her down to the local doctor's office. And, yeah, there was, uh, you know, defecant coming out of her mouth and her nose. Didn't stop me from doing mouth-to-mouth on her. And that just, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of my still triggered to this day when I when I deal with mud and heavy rainfall and things of that nature but and we got through that um went down south uh, decided to become a paramedic um I was thinking either become a doctor or paramedic I went the paramedic route um and that those are the days you know Johnny and Roy and all that fun stuff that they weren't that inspirational to me because we didn't really have a lot of television exposure however I watched it once or twice and said it looks pretty cool yeah and uh, the friends that I knew that were firefighters and medics uh, that were, you know, full-time paid, they all had pretty girlfriends and fast cars. And it's like, I want to do that. <laughs> and I should be able to get through uh, school in short order. So, yeah, I went to uh, Daniel Freeman, which is down at UCLA campus. And, uh, yeah, I lived uh, – actually, I was uh, embedded with uh, Inglewood Fire Department uh, for actually quite a while. I ended up staying down there even after um, – after getting out of school, uh, worked uh, Rescue 3. And essentially, Inglewoods is very much like Watts after the Watts riots. Um, that whole element moved into that uh, that area. And um, it's just, uh, yeah, a lot of violence, a lot of drugs, um, responding on yeah, shootings daily, sometimes multiple shootings multiple times, multiple fatalities daily. You had to wear flak jackets to go on a call. And half the time, the police were so busy, they wouldn't respond to the call. Um, and so it was just, yeah, it was a wild west. I mean, we walk into shootouts, literally there's still gunpowder smoke lofting through the air and we'd be in there working on three or four victims and either pronouncing them or working them and running them to the hospital. It was just crazy, crazy times. 
lots of good ripping fires, commercial fires. Um, just, yeah, as a young firefighter, just good times, really good times. Before we go further, because I really want to explore Inglewood, because I think that's uh, a unique perspective that not many people really saw, um, we had the violence on the streets. But even prior to that, we're going to talk about, you know, you your own mental health journey. A common denominator with a lot of people, I think, that have struggled in our profession is some of the stuff they brought into the profession in the first place. When you look back, are there any elements of trauma that you attribute to to parts of your childhood or, or was it all, you know, a great upbringing? And, uh, you know, obviously my, my younger, younger days. Um, so I had two brothers, birth brothers. One of my brothers died shortly after birth. Um, my mom was going through the divorce with my uh, birth father and uh, very stressed out. And uh, she delivered my, uh, my brother, uh, Robert. Um, he was a preemie. And uh, yeah, back in those days, I couldn't do much for premature babies. And unfortunately, he died after being on this earth for a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, just the whole divorce element, uh, not seeing your birth father, um, you know, from being there all the time to not being there at all, um, was probably traumatic for me. Um, and then, yeah, my brother, uh, Mike, uh, who had the bad heart, um, yeah, that was another uh, traumatic event because he was in and out of the hospital so much with his heart condition and that uh, created a lot of stress in the family. And, yeah, a lot of the, uh, you know, growing up as, you know, all kids want uh, some attention from their parents. He probably got uh, the majority of all attention and resources from my folks at the time for many years because of his heart condition. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was difficult. It wasn't um, a fairy tale childhood uh, by any means. And my father, stepfather, he had uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So he was, uh, you know, on medications that made him, um, yeah, abusive and grouchy and it just wasn't wasn't a lot of fun uh, so yeah i'm sure there was you know traumas uh, at an early childhood age that uh, stuck with me and that's probably why i was so independent at so young you know, that's why i got in the fire department so young and left for college so young um, and got out of college you know my first uh, college experience I, I graduated the same time i got out of uh, high school so you know and most kids don't do that most kids kind of go down the path of uh at least resistance to where they just kind of go with the flow and <laughs> college comes after high school, you know, usually it's a junior college or usually it's a four year program then go on to, uh, you know, uh, basically masters and PhD if you want to go that far. But uh, yeah, I kind of took the opposite approach. I was proactive and got it done at an early age. So, yeah. Very cool. Now what about the physical preparation? What kind of sports or, or what exercise element was there in the school ages? Yeah, so my dad, my stepdad, he was a all-state uh, champion of uh, Kansas wrestler, um, and so uh, I wrestled uh, from a young age. And uh, most kids don't have the opportunity to have a state champion wrestler as a father, so um, that was my my father's way of uh, yeah, torture and torment, the way I call it back when I was a kid. Instead of actual beatings that most kids got, you know, for doing whatever back in those days we used to wrestle and yeah so i learned a lot of uh wrestling moves which um to this day um i still use them occasionally in the fire service especially i'm not a big guy i used to be taller but i was uh, we'll talk about the the uh, roofing collapse which uh, shrunk me a couple of inches and i've been a numerous uh involved in numerous incidents uh, throughout the years in the fire service which has actually shrunk me by a couple of inches but yeah. So, you know, working with giants, you know, they're all, you know, six foot four, you know, 300 pound monsters to, you know, me, you now I'm five foot seven, 180 pounds soaking wet and it's all muscle. It's not fat, but still it is what it is. So yeah, those, uh, 
those moves really paid uh, dividends uh, growing up, uh, not only growing up and going through school, but also in the fire service. I'd always pick the biggest guy in the crew when I was a new guy and say, come here, you know, and we'd have a little uh, wrestling tiff. And even if they tried to throw in a punch back in the day, I would get him on the ground and make him tap out and squeal like a pig, whatever it was. And that was it. You know, you did that once and no one bugged you anymore. Now you kind of, it was part of the proving ground back in the day when you could do that. You can't do that anymore though. No, no, I don't think that would go down too well <laughs> in 2021. No, I don't think so either. You can't even hug or shake hands anymore, really, you know. But, um, yeah, so that, and then also, uh, yeah, running was my thing, too. Um, so I was in a cross-country um, running uh, at a young age, um, and I was up in the mountains there, so it was great. I uh, had a lot of great running trails, and I used to kind of just, you know, lose myself when I'd run. And it was kind of a form of meditation. It was great. It really was. And, yeah, I ran uh, track and cross-country in high school, and I also played baseball. I was an all-star catcher. Um but I was, you know, I kind of lost interest in that, I guess, because uh, my dad was a coach. <laughs> and uh, he didn't know much about baseball at the time. I was just kind of gifted as a catcher. And um, I kind of tried to do something, you know, to be uh, rebellious, I guess. So I tried out for football and got my ass just wiped out. I just got creamed, got knocked out cold, um, had to be sent to the hospital twice, once with a broken arm, once with a concussion. So it's like, all right, maybe I'm not cut out for football either. So. Stuck with wrestling and, uh, and and cross country and primarily wrestling. Beautiful, yeah. And it's, it's a reoccurring sport for a lot of people. I think that have reached a high level just because of not only the the physical you know, demand of wrestling, but I think you know that that mental toughness as well. You know the 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 length of the practices and even this morning I was doing jujitsu and I got my ass handed to me. And, uh, yeah, it sucks. So, you know, how can that not help develop, you know, resilience down the road? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, I still reflect back on those times, you know, to this, uh, to this point in my life. And I yeah, went to the state tournament and got my ass handed to me, um, in the very first round. So I was knocked out right away and cause I was cocky and, you know, back in those days, it was a little different program too. Now kids wrestle year round. I mean, they have wrestling clubs, they have all this thing, things that are going on. And for me, you know, I was, I was kind of in that in my family because my dad and I wrestled all the time. My brother was a wrestler as well. So between the three of us, we did that constantly. And so I had that upper hand. So I was pretty cocky going into it and I got my ass kicked, uh, by my own stupidity. <laughs> and yeah, I just, uh, I looked at my opponent, you know, and sized him up. I didn't think he would do much, and it turned out he was an awesome wrestler. And before I knew it, I was pinned. It was like, yeah, the most humiliating experience of my life, pretty much. But yeah, there you go. Absolutely, yeah. Which is just is the same. I've had so much humiliation in the last few days. <laughs> I think uh, my ego is nice and <laughs> flat again. Um, so fast forwarding to Inglewood, because I think it's an interesting perspective. So obviously, South Central, that whole area, um, you know, was known, especially at the height of the. I going to say the height, the, you know, the, the beginning of all, all the gang violence that we were seeing. Talk to me about what you were seeing um, as far as the level of violence, but also, you know, the the contributing factor of drugs amongst all that violence in those times. Yeah, so back in those days, the Crips and the Bloods were big. Um, you know, they pretty much controlled uh, South Central and even, you know, trickled into like Compton, Inglewood, the surrounding communities. And, um yeah, it was just all gang warfare and all, you know, different turfs and uh, primarily driven by drugs and gangs. And, uh, yeah, so like I said, we responded daily to uh, shootings and stabbings and just violence of all 
uh, types, uh, you name it, we, we responded on it. And um, you, know, you had your typical medical calls as well, but uh, the primary response was for, uh, for trauma based off of that. So it was definitely, like I said, the Wild West, you know, especially with, um, like I had mentioned earlier, you know, wearing flak jackets going into uh, calls without police backup uh, on numerous occasions um, to where you literally still have gunpowder in the air. You can see it blue smoke from the guns that were just fired moments before you got there. And, you know, people are either dead or dying um, all over the room. And there's uh, shell casings all over the floor. There's blood everywhere. And back in those days, we'd throw on the mask trousers. It's probably before your medic time. You'd throw on the mask trousers, try to stop the bleeding, poke a couple of large bore IVs, and throw them in the back of the rig and run to the hospital to watch the doc tear off the mask trousers and watch them die in the ER. That happened uh, frequently. But... Uh, yeah, those days were just crazy. I remember, you know, uh, cracking chests uh, with the UR teams. Um, and Martin Luther King Junior Hospital in the heart of Watts was a trauma center that we used to go to frequently. And, uh, yeah, just walking in there and just it was like one chest after the next because all of the traumas, for the most part, in South Central would go to Martin Luther King Junior Hospital. And, you know, we also had like Sentinel and Daniel Freeman hospitals uh, locally, but um, they weren't really trauma centers. So. If you wanted the, your patient to have any chance to survive at all, you took him to MLK. And, um, yeah, it was just amazing the amount of trauma that was going through. There was like a mash unit. It was crazy. It really was. Well, you said about cracking chests. That kind of reminded me of a, a gang-related um, incident when I was at Anaheim. They, uh, you know, this whole, you know, loyalty that you see, they basically flung their homie out in front of the ER doors and then drove away. And it wasn't a trauma center. It was a local hospital. So we were called in to do the interfacility. And, you know, I wasn't a medic at the time. I was, you know, an enthusiastic EMT that was planning on becoming a medic. So I was paying attention. And as they were packaging the patient, I was holding the monitor. And I saw the rate go from, you know, 80 to 70 to 60. And then, you know, basically into asystole. And as it was heading down, I'm like, hey, hey, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to move him. You know, I turned the monitor around. And, and so initially the... The one MD initiated a cardiac massage because you know the the CPR obviously wasn't working, um, and uh, and he was literally opening a textbook because I mean clearly those places don't normally do that. So he's got his hand in this guy's chest, and then the trauma physician from the trauma center drove down to this hospital and proceeded to crack the chest, and the entire you know thoracic cavity and abdominal cavity were just emptied onto this table and you know the guy didn't make it he bled out he was shot in the heart but it was you know it was incredible because this guy was covered in tattoos i don't know if he you know killed people prior to this if it was retaliation who knows but i had that moment that once you know once upon a time and this is this is a, a visualization i carry you know a lot talk about a lot that kid was in a probably in a preschool you know the vpk program probably playing with kids that ultimately will end up in different gangs. You know what I mean? And now he's lying here at 20-whatever, dead with his guts spilled over an ER bed because of some ridiculous notion of, you know, blue versus red or, you know, and we see the same divisions to this day, you know. So um, did did you ever kind of discuss with some of the, the medics and firefighters that you work with the kind of the futility or... or um, you know, the, the, the root of this division that was causing so much violence and death in, in your community? Yeah, no, not so much because it was just so busy and so active. I think uh, what we thought about was what's for lunch. You know, this is before we had any PPE, so we didn't we used to wear gloves. So literally, we'd have blood under our fingernails so thick, we'd be trying to clean up the rig the best we could. 
And I wasn't decon back in those days. Just wipe out the blood, mop it up, try to get the, your hands as clean as you could, and then go on the next call and just try to survive, you know, yourself. Um, self-preservation at its finest. Um, but, yeah, back in those days, no, there wasn't a whole lot of thought. I mean, there was conversations about the, uh, the Watts riots and how the whole – uh, demographics of the area had changed and how it uh, was kind of encroaching closer and closer to the ocean uh, communities and, you know, the violence and the gangs. Uh, but shy of that, it was, like I said, self-preservation. You know, the stations uh, down in that area had Constantino wire, uh, Bob wire, it looked like a prison, for Christ's sake. So you'd have to basically a shift change. You'd have to pull in and there'd be an open gate. And then as soon as the, the crew changed, you'd close the gate and it'd be locked and that'd be it, you know? And so it was like you're in a war zone, essentially. Um, I think things have settled down quite a bit uh, in this day and age, um, and I don't hear about it as much, and I, I don't watch the news at all, not even the local news, so um, the only time I ever hear news is uh, through word of mouth by my, my wife, who uh, watches it occasionally, but yeah, I, I gave up on just general news uh, quite a while ago, so if there's anything going on out there that I don't know about, I'm sure there's plenty. <laughs> I'll hear about it at a future date, but yeah. That's a healthy way of doing it, though. It is. If it's not if it's not affecting you directly, then you know some people need to know, but we don't all need to know. Um, what about how? Because of, of how vulnerable you were, obviously on these scenes, um, you know how how were medics and firefighters treated overall in that particular community? I'm sure the police probably were not welcomed with uh, open arms, but was there a kind of unwritten code of leaving you guys alone? Yes, absolutely. Uh, people respected us no matter where you want to respect us and we respected them in return and they knew that we were there to help so yeah for the most part they didn't mess uh, with firefighters occasionally of course you know you hear about uh, you know traumas because uh, we all wear uniforms um, and I think that's uh, why a lot of firefighters wear t-shirts um, they don't get dressed up with a badge uh, with patches on their shoulders because they most folks identify with that as their police officers or law enforcement um, and so, you know, they might get uh, targeted uh, just for that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all in favor of not wearing a badge, which I had to wear a uniform shirt. Uh, the apartment I worked for after I left uh, Southern California, I worked there for 28 years and it was required to wear it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Anaheim was as well. And I remember we do uh, fire inspections and you'd hear people screaming, La Migra, and they'd all start running. <laughs> we're like, it's OK, we're just here to check the, check this, the fire extinguisher. Calm down. You're good. Right, right. <laughs> we're just... Shopping for lunch, man. <laughs> exactly. Because okay. all the dishwashers running out the back door, it's like, yeah, no, it's not, not what you think. <laughs> well, one more one more area staying on Englewood before we move forward. Um, what did you see as a, a common denominator contributing to entry to gangs, to the violence? You know, were there any things that you identified you know, that, that were preventable with the right resources put in there? Yeah, I think uh, at that point, um, it was a little bit late. I think um, through the years, things have gotten better with a lot of uh, you know funding and uh, government-based programs. But you have to understand that this is like a subculture, sub-society to where they had their own culture, they had their own government, they had their own police force, they had their own way of doing things. And um, it, it operated outside the auspices of any government control. So that's why I call it the wild, wild west, because it really was. They kind of controlled themselves. And uh, I think just through attrition, and uh, fortunately, uh, I think the government was able, through the school system, was able to influence enough kids to get out of the gangs. And that, yeah, there's other opportunities for folks. And so you don't see it like you used to see it. Um, 
I have a quick funny story that uh, just flashed on me. I almost laughed out loud there. But, um, yeah, so uh, when I was in my clinical internships, I did uh, – I was fortunate enough to um, spend uh, a month a – month, I guess it was about like two months, actually, at Martin Luther King um, in the ER as well as I did my OBGYN time there as well. And um, first day – so back in those days, we had to wear white, all white. So a white lab coat, white pants, white shoes, white T-shirt – with a name tag that said paramedic student on it with your name. So I walked in uh, to Martin Luther King. First driving there was a big shock for me because you're talking about a country kid now in the in the city and now going from the city pretty much to the ghetto. And uh, I was literally the only white guy for miles. So I, I parked my car and I'm kind of afraid actually walk into the ER. I get in the ER. It's all uh, basically United Nations. But I'm still the only white guy walking in there. So I get assigned to the a certain nurse in the ER and she pulls me aside and says, honey, this is going to be the wildest thing you've ever witnessed in your life. Now I know what they told you at school. And I'm, you know, basically I still remember these, these words in my mind to this day. I remember what they told you in school. Don't ever do what you're not trained to do. But she goes, honey, you're going to be doing stuff you never dreamed of doing before in your life. And sure enough, <laughs> Within two minutes, she goes, you take this urine sample to the lab, and they set me up. So they had a big cup of yellow. I don't know if it was urine or what it was exactly. Right, right. But the, <laughs> probably, but the top was not screwed on. So I go to grab it, and it dumps all over my pearly whites, right? <laughs> and she goes, ha! She goes, you run back there, and you get these scrubs. I need to get rid of them white clothes. So I, sure enough, I put on these pink scrubs. And so now, you know, uh, patients associate uh, scrubs with being a doctor, right? So now next thing you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, just one of the staff in the ER and just doing whatever I could to help out. So I was, you know, honestly pushing drugs. I had no clue what the hell they were. They just told me the dose and, you know, give it IV, IM, whatever, you know, starting IVs on, um, and basically, uh, you know, homeless drunks that, uh, you know, you, you give them basically the yellow bag, you know, uh, just full of vitamins and things and, uh, just pump them full of uh, fluids and then send them on their way. So they come back again the next day and do the same thing over again. Maybe four or five full arrests going on at the same time. They're like, you want to handle that one? It's like, okay. So next thing you know, you're working a your full arrest. And then they pull you in because they need help because he just cracked another chest. So they need someone to do, you know, basically a cardiac massage. It's like, okay, I've never done that. Might as well. So, yeah, the, that whole um, don't in the, when you leave the medic school, they, they tell you, they make you sign a form saying you will not do any treatment or perform any tasks that you haven't been trained to do. Well, I had on-the-job training right then and there. I pretty much did it all and saw it all. So that was fun as heck. That was, uh, to this day, it still really is a, is a, is a good thought in my head because um, I learned so much. And I think uh, that uh, some of these uh, clinical times that folks go through these days are just so sterile that they're not going to learn half of what they would if they were just thrown in the fire like I was and, and all the students were back in those days. But, yeah. Sorry to get off the beaten path of that, but yeah. No, no, <laughs> and it's funny because I had a similar story, and this wasn't that long ago. I was only, a, you know, went to medic school, oh my goodness, what, nine years ago, something like that, so not that long ago at all, but there's two hospitals here in Ocala. There's the, 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 the fancier one, was called Monroe back then, and then there was ORMC, Ocala Regional, and all the medic students would gravitate towards the fancy one, and me and like there's one other dude that um, went to ORMC and it was the same thing. Like, oh, you know, you're just going to draw blood. You're going to help move people around. I was debrading. I was intubating. I was doing all kinds of stuff. And then I had to do a couple of clinicals at the other hospital. And I was telling them, hey, do you want me to, you know, to run that blood for you? You want me to do this? And they're like, you can do that. 
I was like, haven't you been doing that over here? So yeah, it was, it was the Wild Wild West, exactly how I described it. I mean, if you have two pairs, you know, a pair of hands, they'll get you to do whatever they need, you know, from scrubbing wounds to intubating to you name it. And it was, it was amazing. I got so much experience in that hospital. So I actually can relate, you know, quite clearly to what you're talking about. Yeah, don't tell anyone, James, but I even learned how to suture and I was pretty good at it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, those are the days. Absolutely. That's trial by fire, like you said. Now, one more, th- one more perspective I'd love to get because you were, you know, literally standing in a war zone. And this is something I talk about and it's not the focus of this conversation, but it is related because addiction is something that you deal with a lot now. From this is, this is my own personal view from the journey I've been through. Um, I sat down, for example, with a, a gentleman in Portugal that spearheaded the decriminalization of addiction. Not selling drugs, not smuggling drugs, but addicts are treated like medical patients, not criminals over there. You know, obviously here, you know, we lock away most of our addicts that are caught with anything. Um, and, you know, being a medic and being a firefighter for so long, I see the ripple effect of prohibition, not only on, on the addict, but on the violence that that creates by putting the power in the underworld's hands instead of the medical profession's hands. How much of the violence that you saw came not so much even from a, from a gang affiliation, but from fighting for corners to, to, to sell drugs from, from drug being really the nucleus of the violence. Yeah, I think there was a lot of that, without doubt. You know, that, that you get uh, kids that, you know, innocent kids that venture into the wrong territory and the wrong hood and boom, uh, they get drawn into it. And they don't, you know, the folks that are, it's their territory, they don't know any better. You know, if a kid wanders into their territory, they don't know, you're, you're going to get shot just the way it was. So. And that's um, that happened occasionally, but uh, it wasn't um, you know the letter of the law. That's not that didn't happen daily. I wouldn't say uh, primarily it was uh, yeah it was just uh, uh, primarily the actual gang members killing each other. And you know occasionally you had people killed in friendly fire, but um, or unfriendly fire I should say. But um, yeah, it's collateral trauma and damage that was done. But uh, it wasn't as frequent uh, as one would guess. Um, because people knew uh, to steer clear of those situations growing up and living in that that area. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, what made you transition from that department to a different one? Yeah. So uh, I ended up living right across the street from the beach um, with a, another firefighter, um, and I'll just name you know Gary. Gary's a great guy. I worked for LA County for uh, yeah thirty some odd years, and he had to start in Englewood too. He and I lived together, went to school together. Um, and, uh, I ended up, uh, being introduced to my, to my ex-wife, uh, at that time. Um, and just knowing what was going on in that area and the encroachment of all this violence in that area, I knew that we were going to get serious and, uh, probably have kids one day. And the last place I wanted to raise a child was down in Southern California to deal with all that mess that was going on there. And back in those days, you have to understand how bad the smog situation was. Too. You could literally barely see across the street. That's how bad the pollution was down there. It's much, much clearer down there now. But yeah, back in those days, it was horrific. And, uh, you know, so I, I figured we could either live on the beach or we can, you know, explore moving up north. And uh, kind of a funny story, too. So her dad uh, was moving away to Florida. This is my ex's father, and um, he was going to sell his house to us. And his house was literally right across the street from a Chinese restaurant. And so that smell of Chinese food, you know, it's enticing when, you, when you're going out to dinner. It's like kind of it's part of the process of, you know, your appetite being increased because you smell it first and you look at it and then you taste it. Well, 
smelling Chinese food 24-7 at your own house to me just turned me out. So that literally was one of the, the primary factors of that standing in Los Angeles County. It was the house across the street from the Chinese food restaurant. So I just so happened to be uh, traveling up north to visiting uh, visit my family up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And the city of Campbell Fire Department uh, was testing. And I just heard it through the grapevine. This is well before the Internet uh, or anything of that nature. You know, In order for you to hear about these uh, job offerings, uh, you had to put an interest card in or know somebody that uh, was working there. It was going through the same process. And it was all by telephone. And it wasn't cell phone. There's no such thing in those days. It was actual telephones. And um, that's a whole other thing. They had core radios and those heavy you know, suitcases that weighed 50 pounds. We carry around to you know, call the hospitals. I'll get into that subject later. But, um, yeah, so when I came up to uh, uh, Santa Cruz, a friend of mine had said, hey, uh, by the way, Campbell Fire is uh, hiring. And it was one of the only paramedic departments um, in Northern California. There were, there was no, the only, so you have to put this all into perspective. You know, the paramedic program started in the early 70s. The first one was, uh, you know, in, in Los Angeles County, uh, in our neck of the woods, um, and so not every department had paramedics back in those days. It was, it was actually very, very few. So up in the, the Silicon Valley, Palo Alto Fire and Campbell Fire were the only two who had paramedic programs back in those days. And so um, it, it kind of got me a little excited. It's like, yeah, that'd be kind of cool, you know, to live close to where I was raised and much cleaner environment, um, you know, a lot less trauma, air's cleaner. I could live back up in the Redwood Forest, that kind of thing. So I decided to throw my, my – uh, my name in the uh, in the hat there and go through their testing process. And it just so happened when I was up visiting my family, that's when applications were due. And I, I had my list of, you know, things uh, like the uh, written exam, the oral exam, uh, the physical agility test, that sort of thing. And so it all coincided with days off. So I just ended up uh, going through the process. And I didn't put a lot of pressure on myself to get the job, but I came out number one on their list. And it's like, okay, now I have a big decision to make. Do I take it or do I leave it? And, uh, yeah, it took me maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes and figured out ah, it's just better, you know, for me in general and the family in general, if I were to take it. So I took it and then I moved up North, uh, Northern California. And yeah, um, the rest of that is, uh, is history as far as that goes, but I uh, worked, uh, Campbell worked on their, their medic unit. So we had a paramedic rescue back in those days. So we had all the uh, rescue tools, the airbags, the hearse tool, all that good stuff on this big giant ambulance is what it was like an oversized ambulance. And you do see some departments still have these things. Uh, but we were also the transport uh, medic unit. We didn't have engine company paramedics back in those days. Uh, we just had the ambulance uh, medics or the rescue medics is what they called us. And so we would also uh, be interior on every single fire. So the, the paramedic rescue was exactly that. We'd go in and clear a house and perform rescue in fires, uh, perform rescues in vehicle accidents, perform rescues in whatever, uh, high-rise extrication, whatever the case was, uh, we'd go do that. And so even if we were at a hospital across town and a structure fire came in, we'd drive a 1,000 miles an hour to get there. And a lot of times they would wait for us to make entry. Um, and go in and do a search of the building and pull any victims out before they'd go in there and put the fire out. And as soon as we did that task, they'd make us go available for medical calls. So we'd still be like in our turnouts, literally covered from soot from head to toe, and we'd be running medical calls. And these little old ladies with, you know, COPD, you'd walk into their house and you're like covered with soot, you're still dripping with sweat, and you smell like a structure fire, and they're trying to breathe, and they're like, get away from me, Sonny, what's wrong with you? And, you know, that happened nine times out of ten. And we were a busy department, so 
we had averaged, you know, 10 plus calls a shift on the rescue and then uh, throw in a fire or two per tour. And, you know, it was, it was good fun, but also, you know, the typical back in those days we had Claxton, we had uh, big bells that would go off all night long, you know, and we'd have the, uh, the engine guys that would just roll over and the rescue guys would hop on the rescue and go on the call. And most of our calls occurred at night um, in that jurisdiction. That was back in the nightclub day where nightclubs are super popular. So we had them all in the city of Campbell and we had like four different nightclubs that would keep us going all night long. So we would do training and inspections and all the normal stuff during the day. We'd be up all night, literally every night responding to calls. Not only do we have a lot of retirement centers in our jurisdiction. So, you know, responding on the same, you know, little ladies and gentlemen that, uh, you know, had chest pain and shortness of breath, whatever diabetic issues to, you know, bar fights and, uh, you know, one of those things, I was kind of a trauma specialist, if you want to call it that, back in those days, because I was so used to it, that uh, I, I kind of thrived on trauma. So it was kind of that adrenaline rush excitement, not the same as it was in Southern California, but still, we had, you know, a few shootings and stabbings and lots of uh, motor vehicle accidents and, you know, lots of trauma, uh, lots of fatalities uh, as well. So it was it was fun, fun times. And that lasted until um, around... 93 we merged with the county fire department and the county fire department didn't have paramedics so they basically got rid of our program really and, they went backwards and, yeah they went backwards and so myself and a few other paramedics that had a lot of experience um not only at campbell but also other areas uh, we decided to approach the union and the fire chief with the idea of starting an engine company paramedic program and yeah it got a lot of pushback but fortunately for us, we were savvy enough, and I was in the local union at the time as well, savvy enough for the communities to where the communities kind of pushed for it. And it was a very uh, political situation, and not having engine company uh, medics, you know, a lot of folks were dying needlessly, especially now that the Campbell medics were gone. The County Cowboys uh, were a little different program back in those days. And so we, uh, we ended up uh, basically convincing the fire chief at the time that it was a good idea politically and uh, for us to get funding, it's just, it's a no brainer. There's so much funding available for EMS, ALS programs, especially back in those days that uh, they finally agreed to it, uh, begrudgingly agreed to it. So I negotiated, yeah, 10% more for, for firefighter paramedics, right? So that was a huge deal for everyone else. What do you mean 10%? That's why you guys getting paid so much for what you do. Well, once they saw what we did, they, they had a change of heart. Um, and back in those days, you have to understand, they were EMTs, but um, yeah, they typically would go to a call, an EMS call, and they would either uh, you know cancel themselves right away if it was a basic EMS call, or they just, you know, whatever, you know, I'll get the gurney for you kind of thing. And they never really helped out with patient care for the most part. It was rare that they did. So they went from that to, you know, being an integral part of an ALS team now. You know, they had to know the equipment. They had to help out because it was one paramedic running this call. And so you basically needed the other two. We ran three-person engine companies, four-person trucks, and a four-person rescues in Hazmat Rig. Um, and it was a county department, so it was relatively large. Um, and so we were only going to put medics in the busiest parts of our jurisdiction. And, um, yeah, so there's a lot of pushback from the crews as well because we displaced guys. So, like, for instance, my very first assignment was Engine 4, which is up in a place called Redwood Estates. It's Highway 17. It's a, it's a windy mountainous highway that goes from uh, the big city to uh, a beach town, Santa Cruz. 
And um, lots and lots of trauma there. I mean, fatalities just add water and you have fatalities. It just went, you know, because they didn't have center divide on the entire highway, just parts of it. And there was head on collisions at, you know, highway speeds all the time. And so, uh, yeah, with that uh, being said, I was sent up there to Redwood Estates and I had to displace uh, a crew that had been together for 20 plus years and they were pissed. They were just not happy I was there. And I understood that. And I'm, you know, savvy enough kind of guy to where, you know, I just, I didn't push it. I just kind of massaged it in. And so I still remember the first shift on engine four as the firefighter medic. I had all this brand new ALS gear that I'm unfolding and trying to show these guys, these old seasoned guys who they didn't give an F about paramedicine or all my new toys. And they're looking at it like, Jesus Christ, you just broke up our happy family. And now you want us to learn all this new crap. We don't want to have anything to do with you, man, or this. Well, literally later on that same day, because he didn't want to check out any of the equipment I had. We uh, it started pouring down rain so much so you could barely see because this was uh, basically a double wide trailer. This was like a an outback station, more or less a double wide trailer, and then the app floor was separate. And so you had to run from the uh, basically the quarters to the app floor across the parking lot, and it, you got a lot of rain up in the mountains there, and it came down like in buckets, in buckets. You couldn't even really see the app floor, and you just it was this thunderous rain. And sure enough, we get uh, dispatched for a uh, head-on collision with multiple uh, casualties and multiple vehicles involved. So, of course, you know, in the good old days, that captain didn't uh, didn't request a full rescue response or additional resources. We pull up on scene. It's a triple fatality with probably another six people in critical condition. And I'm looking at him, and it's still pouring down rain. And I'm calling out stuff because I'm trying to save this one gal who essentially is choking to death with her own blood. So I'm trying to save her. The other two are obviously dead. And he had no clue what I was asking him to, to get. And I had just tried to show them exactly what would have helped save this lady's life. Well, long story long, um, you know, there were several fatalities out of that call. And then as soon as we got back to the station, so it's like, so Jeff, you want to show us that equipment again? <laughs> and so, yeah, they, they took it serious after that. Unfortunately, it took that to, to, to make them look at it seriously. And you know, we kind of used that call uh, department-wide as you guys got to take this stuff seriously because you know you could this could be life or death and we can save lives with the tools we have now um so that kind of involved and uh, pretty much evolved i should say into me becoming um the paramedic that was in charge of uh, quality assurance across the district and i was also the paramedic coordinator who ran a continuing education program and uh, got us our seed provider number through the state and Got very involved with that, uh, taught uh, paramedicine and uh, got involved with the uh, San Francisco Paramedic Association and taught, you know, all this typical stuff, ACLS, PALS, you know, all those those certs that you stress about every couple of years and you have to go through the testing process. And I did a lot of that stuff in-house and that was kind of cutting edge back in the day. I ended up negotiating a contract with Stanford Hospital. Uh, Stanford University Hospital, which is also a trauma center, to uh, send uh, our medics that were on slow units or uh, who didn't uh, meet our quality assurance standards and needed some help with IVs or whatever it was. We'd send them up there. We also had a contract at the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, the other trauma center, to kind of do uh, the same thing. So, um, yeah, just uh, many years of doing that and uh, trying to enhance our program and uh, also started uh, emergency medical dispatch system in our district. So, um, and that's that 
took off nationwide as well. So I did uh, training for that with our dispatchers uh, for County Communications and uh, also did their quality assurance. So I was a busy guy back in those days. And that's when I was slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so much in there as well. Firstly, with the rescue thing, I remember being on, we had uh, you know, primarily transport units, but we had tools on them in Orange County. And I remember, you know, like literally knocking down a structure fire. And then the moment, you know, we come out, they're like, all right, you guys go back in service. And then you get banged out to a call. And like you said, you're just still covered in soot and everything. So I can totally relate to that too. And then the um, the the firefighter versus medic thing, it blows my mind because I'm, I've been in the fire service 14 years. I started training in 2002, I think it was, or 03. Um, you know, right from day one, we did EMT before we did fire. And you know, that my last place, they used to have it where if you're on the engine, you were called a firefighter. If you were on the the you know, the medic unit, you were called a paramedic, even though you were also a firefighter. And they and they had this kind of element of grandiose, like, oh, we're you know, we're too good for EMS, we're firefighters, you know. And they never ran on anything in this department because it was very well sprinkled and everything. But I never understood that mentality. I get it at the beginning, the inception of the of the medic program, which is what you're talking about. But more recently that you are okay with the idea of doing a primary search, finding someone, pulling them out onto the lawn, and then watching them die because you don't want to go above and beyond on the EMS side. What's your kind of perspective on, on, in an ideal world, all firefighters being paramedics as well? Yeah, you know, I, I pushed for that. Actually, I pushed hard when I was uh, um, the EMS coordinator for uh, Santa Clara County Fire to uh, get uh, a paramedic on every single apparatus, whether it was a truck, a rescue, an engine, a brush patrol, a hazmat unit, whatever it was throughout the county uh, jurisdiction, I wanted a medic on every single unit. And, to, and in this day and age now, and they have for many years, uh, we do. And it, it spread across the county because next thing you know, we have saves. Our save rate went from like 40% to 80%, boom, overnight with all these medics everywhere. Um, and uh, so it took off. And, you know, I think that um, our department and other departments in our jurisdiction, in our general vicinity, when they saw across the state that, hey, these guys are doing it, you know, this is a, a pilot program, a lot of other departments reached out to us uh, looking for ways of starting a program in their uh, jurisdiction. And then, you know, long after I left uh, my position there uh, as paramedic coordinator and promoted up to the ranks, um, that continued on. So, um, yeah, Santa Clara County Fire to this day uh, is renowned across the nation for being one of the most progressive uh, departments in many, many ways uh, in developing programs that uh, people emulate across the across the nation. So it's it's great stuff. I mean, I'm very proud of my past, and I'm very proud of uh, being one of the fathers of the paramedic program in that area, and and kind of developing it and pushing it uh, to the level it is now. It's it's incredible. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to your, um, you know, your FEMA responses, your strike teams and, and that kind of thing. But before we do, you mentioned about the roof claps and being shorter now. So what were some of the near misses that you had in your career? Yeah, so uh, I was like the cockroach. You just didn't kill me. <laughs> you, could, you could crush me. You could poison me. You could burn me. You could do whatever you wanted. And I just wouldn't die. Um, and so, yeah, I um, had numerous events. Um uh, throughout my career, um, yeah, it just—I'll uh, I'll tell you a, a couple of the, if you want to call them highlights. I don't consider them highlights; they're more lowlights. But um, um, yeah, a couple of them uh, that uh, 
I should have probably been killed was uh, this is after I promoted to captain. I was a engine company captain on the very last red fire engine in our entire department. We went to white of all colors. I can't stand white fire engines. Well, everything's white in Santa Clara County. So this is a very last red fire engine. And I was the captain on the fire engine. And um, so it came, uh, we, we worked at Kelly's schedule. So 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, and then four days off in a row. Now they're doing the, the 4896s. Um, back in those days, you know, you had shift change every day. So we're just getting uh, off duty after a busy night. And this is uh, Los Altos. It's a, a town in our mid-jurisdiction in the county. And uh, we ran a lot of mutual aid calls with outside jurisdictions, you know, because we had border drops. Um, and so, uh, you know, auto aid, mutual aid uh, happened on a daily basis. So this one was actually an auto aid call into a neighboring jurisdiction and came in as a rescue. And it was about maybe 15 minutes to 8 o'clock in the morning. That's when we, uh, we basically changed shift. And we try to do it early just because of calls like this. Well, we were short-staffed, as, you know, most departments are. And so, you know, medics are working all these extra hours, and there's all these holdovers, and it was just crazy, crazy times. And um, so we get called for a rescue response, auto aid, um, in our neighboring jurisdiction. And so I hop on the rig, get my turnouts on, hop on the rig, getting ready to go. And um, it was a confirmed rescue call. And so it's like, all right, step it up a little bit. So I, you know, put us 10-8 responding. And uh, I look around back and I see my medic there and her turnouts and I'm going, uh, where's JJ? Uh, he's the driver. And she goes, he had a really hard time hearing. This is his last call by this retired amount. He couldn't hear me. I had to scream at him. I had to turn his headset. We used a telecom system. So I crank up his uh, headset all the way and ours were turned all the way down. And it, I, I mean, I, you could hear him like, you know, when you hear a hearing aid in the background when somebody has it turned up too, too high and it just kind of, <laughs> does that well you do that every time you talk to him to do that in the headset but um that's how hard of hearing he was and you know you know you'd have to actually look at you to read your lips to hear what you're saying that's how deaf he was and he never got treatment for his hearing so anyway he thought he was relieved so he got in his car and he's driving off and so my mess told my medic it's like get out there and tell him he's driving he's the engineer so she catches him before he leaves the fire station grounds well at this point we're like two minutes into the response and, you know, other units are getting on scene. And so J.J. finally runs it back, and he's, he's just freaked out. His eyes are the size of saucers. He gets his turnout gear on. He jumps in the rig, and he, he goes, where are we going? And I told him, and he just starts hauling ass. And it's like, J.J., slow down, slow down. You know, I'm on the captain's side. We don't have brake pedal or steering wheel. I wish I did back in those days. But, no, we didn't have one. And I'm screaming at him to slow down. We're coming up to a blind intersection. It's a red light. We're going, you know, code three, red lights and siren. Blast in the air horn, and it's like, oh, this is you know going to be good because it's blind, and there's a school just off to the left-hand side, blind intersection off to the right. Well, of course, as soon as we break through this intersection, a suburban full of kids pulls out in front of us. Boom, we hit that thing, and it goes flying through the air, and this is in slow motion. This glass and debris flying everywhere. My windshield shatters, and I could see the suburban in midair flying and lands on top of a school bus bench. But nobody was on it, thank God. And it broke the steering uh, column on the rig. And so now the rig's aiming right for a concrete abutment and also a, a power pole. So we hit the power pole first, and it's a concrete power pole. And all this stuff is happening on my side. So as we hit things, the uh, interior of the cab compartment's getting smaller and smaller. And it's crushing me more and more and more. So we hit things. So hit the car. 
it basically uh, kind of crunches uh, the front bumper and uh, basically keeps my door from opening. So it's it's basically it's jammed and cracks the window. Now we hit this uh, this concrete uh, power pole abutment, and now it's it's a big impact. And now it pushes pretty much the whole front of the cab up into my legs. <clears throat> and so my knees now are up into my chest, and the whole dashboard is up in my face. And we're still going. We went right through that thing, and it just pretty much exploded. Power lines now are down. And now there's a center divide, concrete center divide, and hits that thing again, probably only going at this point 20 miles an hour or less. And that just kind of put all that pressure on me and the power lines are on top of the rig. And, um, you know, I'm screaming and yelling because I want to make sure my crew's still alive. I don't know if the people in the suburban are dead or what's going on. Cause we hit them. I mean, it was just a, a really violent traumatic impact. And my medic finally, you know, says, I'm okay. I'm okay. She's like, um, you know, I, I think JJ is okay too. He got out of the rig already. And I'm going, well, make sure that the people in the car um, are okay. So I'm calling in my own rescue. So I'm the incident commander in my own rescue. And I had to basically <laughs> tell the dispatcher we uh, we basically are canceled, uh, canceling ourselves from the rescue response. And we have a rescue that we're involved with now. And I gave them the location, gave them basically a description of what's going on. And um, and they had to have me repeat it twice because they didn't understand that we were in the uh, in the incident and I'm basically entrapped in the fire engine, right? And I don't know how many casualties we have. What's going on? So my medic gets out and she uh, gets out of the rig, goes and checks on the people in the suburban. She runs back, but she's at a distance and going, what's going on? She goes, there's live power lines on top of the engine. I'm going, that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Here I am entrapped in the engine. There's live power lines on top of the rig. Nobody got electrocuted, thank God, when they got out. And she goes, Everybody in the suburban's okay, except for one kid has a broken back. And I'm going, great. So, we, you know, one kid has a broken back. So nobody's dead. That's a good thing, right? I'm thinking, you know, thank God. And But I can't get out of the rig. I'm still entrapped. So this rescue response shows up, and they realize Jeff's the IC, but he's, he's the one that's trapped on the rig. So um, anyway, with some effort, they finally got me out. Uh, my back is totally in spasm. Um, I had a previous back injury from before, but this time I did some serious damage to some lower discs. Uh, they were both herniated, um, blew out my right knee, totally uh, destroyed my right knee. So when they get me out, they take me to a trauma center. And as I'm, you know, basically uh, getting loaded into the ambulance, I'm passing command to my battalion chief who just shows up on scene. And he got, he's like, what the? <laughs> he had no idea. It's, uh, but anyway, he, he finally, it all kind of came together for him. So, uh, yeah, it was just a big issue. It turns out the kid that had a broken back had a previous broken back from a football injury. And he was basically in like this big gusset harness, thank God. And so we impacted him on his side. And so he was kind of protected because he was wearing this big gusset harness thingy that he had on. And so he didn't uh, further injure himself. So nobody in the car, that, that Suburban, thankfully it was a new Suburban, so it had the side impact airbags and all that stuff. It saved him. And so the only one that was actually significantly injured was myself. And, and so, yeah, I remember going to the trauma center and then me all pumped up with morphine and went out because my back is totally a mess and I'm in spasms. And uh, kind of a funny story, uh, my firefighter um, medic who was supposed to be working that day had the day off. And, uh, yeah, son of bloke. His father's from England, so son of bloke, S-O-B. You know, Harry, um, anyway, a good friend of mine. Um, and he's on his day off doing his thing. Well, I wake up, I'm in the trauma center. I just, you know, had, 
I've been poked and probed and prodded and all these tests have been done. And I wake up and I think I'm dead because I wake up and Harry is reading to me green eggs and ham. <laughs> so all this, all this stuff's going on around me. And I'm just thinking, I got to be dead. There's no way in hell Harry's here because Harry was on a trip. And and I have this guy looks like you're reading to me green eggs and ham of all things. And I'm dying. Why am I <laughs> Anyway, it was Harry. He was there, and he was reading Green Eggs and It was the only book that was available to him in the room, and he figured he'd be funny and read Green Eggs and Ham to me. So sure, he did. And uh, so once I kind of came to my senses, I realized this is really bizarre, but okay. You know, it's just a day in the life of Jeff. So yeah, I ended up getting uh, discharged from the trauma center after a bit and uh, ended up spending about three months at home with a serious back injury and knee injury and ended up having to have multiple um, – yeah, interventions on my back and uh, surgery on my knee. Um, and uh, it, it took me almost a year to recover from that to go back to full duty. I was on light duty for a time. And light duty will cure cancer, by the way, as we all know. Yes. You put on light duty, you're stuck in the office, that'll cure cancer. I don't care if you have it or not. I don't care how severe it is. You're going to be better. Whether you are or not, you're going to go back and get on the line as quick as you can. So that's kind of how that went. Absolutely. Well, just just touching that before we talk about the fire, Um you, know, you mentioned about the shifts and you mentioned now how you know we had the 4896s one of the things that i talk about a lot is the effect of sleep deprivation on our profession and i really really believe whether it's police fire ems some of these horrendous intersection crashes that we see you know are probably from microsleeps and you, you, i've had so many people from the sleep medicine world on here and so it haunts me when i think about that because we're out there to save lives but there are many 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 occasions where we've taken lives because of that element Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm just lucky that didn't happen uh, in a previous incident. You know, I, I can think back several times to where we had been responding. And this is back in the day, even in the Campbell day when we were short staffed. I mean, we were just so short staffed because between injuries and they, they refused to hire enough guys, staffing was low and you'd get forced back. I mean, you did not have a, a choice. You get forced back from a 24. Now it turned into a 72 to a 96 and beyond. And you didn't have this sleep break thing. These guys get now, you can call time out when you get too tired and they give you a little back rub and a nap, whatever, you know, some hot cocoa and rub your feet, whatever it is. Back in those days, you just did it. You just bucked up and did it. And you caught sleep where you could catch sleep. If it was at the ER, you know, after you changed out the, the rig sheets and you just got cleaned up, you'd take a cat nap for five minutes before you got dispatched to the next call. And then I was well known too. When I'd get home at times, I mean, I would be so out of it. I would literally be golfing with my buddies and I'd fall asleep in the golf cart and they had dumped cold beers in my head and I would be unconscious, unresponsive, not because I was drunk, because I was so freaking exhausted. I would could fall asleep anywhere and you couldn't wake me up. I was unconscious. I was out. I was toast. And I'm just lucky it didn't happen on duty. And that's uh, goes for a lot of guys. So it's that sleep deprivation. And then it's the freaking noise, the claxton, the bells, the air horn that we had all three at one time. So when you got a call, all this stuff would go off at the same time, and your heart rate would go, say, in the mid-50s up to 150, 160 in a matter of seconds. And that's why we kill guys in the fire service. You I mean, they, they've gotten kinder and gentler now. It's like, you know, little dings and pings, and you don't have the claxton and the ear horns and the big bells any longer for the most part. Some department probably did, but for the most part, it's not that way. Now it's, you know, kinder and gentler. And it's almost like somebody's rubbing your shoulders, wake, massaging you to wake, you know, versus before it was like, get out of bed and you would get out of bed. And uh, yeah, so that took a toll. I'm sure it did. You know, that was, uh, I think, probably the root of my hypertension and my 
cardiac arrhythmia I had for years, you know, um, and it was all PACs. It was too much adrenaline in my system. And, uh, and then you, 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 you pile that on top of drinking three pots of coffee a day and you're on shift for God knows how many days before you go get rest. And then you go home after seeing all this crap and being up for that long and you go home to, your, you know, two small kids and your wife who haven't seen you in three or four days and they want, you know, all your attention. It's like, all you want to do is go to sleep. And how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? You just, you try, you do your best, right? And you feel guilty because you, you do pass out and you miss, you know, that one day that you had with the child and you slept most of it. Exactly. And then sometimes, you know, you're so sleep deprived and you're just so exhausted. You can't sleep. You think you can sleep, you sleep for five minutes, you wake up and you're wide awake, but you're exhausted if you know what I'm saying. And so you start drinking beers or whatever and you drink beers till you pass out and you get up and you do the whole vicious cycle all over again. And you do that for me, 34 years. Well, no wonder I'm effed up. <laughs> you know, just that alone. Um, you know, it's like torture in the military. They would consider that torture. Yep. Seriously. Well, like, they use they use sleep deprivation for selection. They use it for interrogation. You know, and that's my thing. Is you know, we have agencies in in the country a lot in the Northeast that 42 hour work week. And we have so many, you know, whether it was Anaheim where I worked in Southern California or Orange County on the, on the East Coast again, that 56 hour is, you know, the, the minimum. Like you said, that's before you get mandatory for God knows how many other shifts. And yet in the civilian world, 40 hours is pretty universally accepted as a work week and they don't have to get up at night and they don't have to respond to shootings and wrecks and fires. So we we have devolved to the point where we are literally killing our men and women, not only chronically with the diseases that it caused, but acutely with mistakes that either we make and we die or we make and someone else dies. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that uh, that hasn't changed. And in fact, um, I hear it all the time uh, from our brothers and sisters that, uh, that come to us for help, um, that the same thing is happening, you know, that uh, they, what I just uh, talked about, where you devolve into... A substance abuser because you need to get sleep and you're in pain and so you you self-medicate and you end up uh, becoming a substance abuser and unfortunately some of these folks they get fired from their employment because they're even you know uh, dragging this habit to work with them unfortunately and they get uh, let go of and we have people in treatment right now over the last week I put two in treatment for exactly that reason. They no longer have the employment, but they still have the freaking problems the employment caused. And now they have to deal with that. And there's no, it's not like the military where you have the VA to, to support you. You don't. No, you're talking about, you know, these municipalities, once you've uh, basically lost your service uh, with that department, you lose all your benefits as well to you and your family. So now you have 30 day grace period typically with your benefits before they run out. And if you don't seek treatment within those first 30 days, you're on your own. And we can talk about our scholarship program a little bit later on, but that's where we come in handy because we have scholarships. I negotiated along with others that were white peer support uh, with um, really, really good treatment centers across the nation that just specialize in treating first responders. And these folks are lifesavers. There's no doubt about it. Between us and them, we can put firefighters that don't have insurance and don't have the means to pay for treatment in these programs for as long as it takes them to get well enough to basically survive on the outside, outside of the program. So we can talk about that more in a bit. So back to trauma, back to back to Jeff uh, being the cockroach and they tried to kill him numerous times and couldn't. So that was just one in the long list of things. Uh, so yeah, another good uh, trauma 
uh, to where I had to get my shoulder replaced. So I see, I'm, I'm, I'm like uh, the bionic man. Both I have, I'll talk about all my steel and my body in a minute, but, uh, so I have a steel shoulder. Well, it's not steel, but titanium and stainless. Both of my knees, um, are essentially stainless steel and titanium. My back's got some, um, metal under it as well. But, um, yeah, so I'm at a call one day. Once again, I'm the captain on a busy engine working an overtime shift. And, um, we go to a full arrest call early in the morning and uh, most of the rigs are set up uh, pretty much the same, but occasionally you have a crew that does things a little bit differently throughout the district. So stuff might be in a different compartment, but we have full arrest. So the guys are, you know, running in there, they radio for me to uh, uh, grab the auto pulse, which some people refer to it as a geezer squeezer. So, and the thing weighs about 60 pounds. It's not like, so I'm kind of grabbing this thing on the run, and it wasn't where it's supposed to be, so it's like, shit. So I run, and it was in the back of the cab instead of in the court more normally. So I grab it, and I go to sling it over my shoulder and run towards the door that's closing to this facility. And I knew everyone's going to the call, and this thing's going to be a soft-locking door, so I'm kind of like double-stepping it. Well, the thing snags on the doorpost, but I have the strap wrapped around my arm, and it's not up on my shoulder. It's down here around my bicep. And as I'm running, the thing grabs my arm and dislocates my shoulder and almost tears my arm off, literally. And then once it does that, the uh, auto pulse comes out of the um, apparatus door and drops to the ground, which literally spun my arm all the way around, <laughs> 180 degrees, and it went numb. And I'm looking at my arm, and it's like pointing in the right, uh, the wrong direction, and I still have the strap around my my wrist and I can't feel a thing and it's like this isn't good so I grab it with my other arm and go in the call and I'm trying to tell him I'm not going to be much use and I can't even write on the clipboard because that's my writing hand and my arm there's something seriously wrong with it and so uh, the medic looks at me and goes oh just uh, take take five cap we're good you know so they worked up this full arrest and uh, it was in a convalescent hospital and they, they called the full arrest and so I go to the hospital and the doc basically resets my arm and um, it was totally dislocated. And he says, yeah, I think he, he tore everything up in there. He goes, I have it uh, relocated. And my feeling came back. Perfusion came back just fine. Uh, but I had a little bit of neuropathy in my fingertips. And it wasn't right, obviously. And I was on a 72-hour shift, a force back, right? So I'm into the second shift at a different station. I had to transport all my stuff to a different station. And um, we were up at night the night before. So I'm on a recliner at lunchtime to take my safety nap. And I go to roll over, and it comes out again. And it's like, ah! <laughs> so fortunately, uh, a big firefighter there uh, asked me if I wanted to have him relocate my arm. And I said, would you please? And so he did, fortunately. And so I, I called my, my BC at that point and just said, hey, you know, I, I'm not sure I can do the rest of the shift. I'm kind of toast. You know, I'm not going to be useful if we get a structure or whatever. And so I got off. I got out of the force back. But, of course, somebody had to take my spot. They weren't happy about coming in, but it is what it is. And so, yeah, I go to the dock, and yeah, they did an MRI, and yeah, I just totally uh, destroyed it. I fractured the top of my humerus and just tore out every piece of soft tissue you can imagine in my shoulder, and they replaced it. And so that was about a year recovery time of that, too. I couldn't even throw a baseball for almost a year plus, and that was a very painful surgery. And, yeah, so um, got through that. And, um, yeah, there was others, um, several other <laughs> injuries, but uh, – not quite as traumatic, but yeah, just uh, we can talk about some of the other stuff a little later on. But uh, those are probably the two things that really stand out. Well, the building—I'll well, tell you about the roof collapse. That—that that was also another big one that almost killed me. 
So this is my last fire, actually. Um, so last fire I went to, I was once again, we had a line of duty death. Uh, Captain Mark McCormick was killed in a structure fire. Um, unfortunately, um, it was a structure fire at night. Um, and uh, I was filling his spot um, after he uh, passed away. Um, and unfortunately, uh, when he was killed, um, he was electrocuted. There was uh, 50 KW lines that were hanging down from this uh, illegal building, and he walked right into it and electrocuted him, and just he, he was fried. Um, the crew on scene uh, worked him up, but, I mean, he literally, he was just uh, burnt so bad and electrocuted so badly that there was no saving uh, poor Mark, and he was a personal, dear personal friend of mine. And, uh, we had just gone out uh, with our wives uh, a couple of nights before that, um, playing bocce ball at Campo de Bocce, and just a good all-around guy. And the guy, you know, he worked for years in the fire service. He was a medic team from down south, similar to my situation, a little different. But he was uh, burned at a very young age. He had deformed hands because they were burnt so severely when he was a kid. And he overcame that obstacle and, you know, eventually became a fire captain, you know, and uh, died on duty, which really sucked. But it's kind of changed the way that we, as a fire service in general, respond to, uh, you know, power line calls these days as well. Um, so there was some good that came out of that, but uh, not a whole lot for the guys that uh, were dealing with it at the time. And I still think of uh, Mac McCormick uh, uh, to this day. Um, and it happened in February, of course, and it just uh, the day before Valentine's Day, February 13th. And uh, that's just always one of those trigger days. Uh, you just always bring back memories of Mark. But, uh, uh, yeah, so back to this call. So we get a call in the middle of the night um, for uh, a fire at an AMCO, um, basically a transmission shop in a commercial strip mall. So I'm first on scene, give a size up. There's uh, smoke showing, just light smoke, no, no flames. And, um, so, uh, I go do, you know, try to do a 180 the best that I can around the front of the building and try to get around to do a 360 and no, there's no, I couldn't get to the backside because of the fencing and vehicles and whatnot. So gave them a size up the incoming units. Um, and then I passed command to the, uh, the battalion chief who was uh, rolling up on scene and they said, we're going to go interior and see what's burning. Um, and so, uh, the rescue showed up. I basically had them uh, cut open one of the roll-up doors, and myself and a couple other guys uh, went in. And the smoke's banked down to the floor, standard. But there's freaking so many cars. This is probably um, a workshop that's got to be, I'm saying, 60 feet in width by about 80 feet in length, and it's uh, you know two and a half stories uh, to the to the roof uh, commercial complex. And so we go in. And we're crawling though. It wasn't super hot, but uh, and I got my my ticks and my thermal imaging camera, and I'm seeing a lot of heat towards the back of the building, but I can't tell where it's coming from. It just the whole back wall is glowing, and I figured it was probably a vehicle that had you know been burning and now it's smoldering, and maybe it's it's most of it's you know block wall construction, and uh, I mean it's got uh, truss construction for the roof, so I'm hoping it didn't burn up into the roof yet. And uh, get to the back, and yeah, there's a bunch of debris burning back there. But we had to crawl through all these cars to get there. And thankfully, there was cars. If there wasn't cars, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I'd be a pancake. I'd be dead. And uh, so we just started putting water on the fire. And at the same time, the truck companies above us cutting a roof and are cutting the hole in the roof to ventilate. And uh, the roofing wasn't uh, nailed down appropriately. So when they cut the, the hole in the roof, the whole section came collapsing down right on top of me. 
And fortunately, it well, hit me. I say fortunately because it hit me and not somebody else. It would have killed anybody else. The guys that are six foot four that have been dead. <laughs> me at this point being, you know, hammered down a little shorter. Now I'm five seven and a half. Back in those days, I was around five nine, close to it. And uh, yeah, it hit me square in the head in the uh, the air tank, and then it pushed me down, ricocheted off me, hit my firefighter's leg, and uh, he had a, a slight fracture in his ankle. Uh, but I was pretty much entrapped by this stuff. Um, and, you know, I didn't know it hit me. One minute I'm putting, helping these guys put water on the fire. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm basically looking at the floor and I can't breathe and I can't move. And um, so it's like, uh, now what happened? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I kind of did a, a mental check of myself, you know, um, from head to toe. And uh, I said, okay, you know, I can breathe kind of. Um, I can't move anything, but I can feel my, my hands and my, my legs. And the only thing that hurts is my back and my back is already re destroyed from other, you know, incidents. And it's like, great, my back again. So, um, yeah, they were able to drag me out and, uh, took me to the hospital and, um, yeah, once again, I lost a couple more discs in my back. So the ever shrinking man. <laughs> and, uh, so that, yeah, I had a bunch of procedures for that as well. Um, and that was kind of it for me. I was off, uh, and I was getting close to retiring anyway. And it was like, okay, I went through a divorce and got remarried to my current wife. That's a whole nother story. And so I had to do a couple extra years, but I really didn't have to. I could have retired out. I was uh, 53, I think, at the time. And um, it's like, that's it. And I just, I, I'm tired of getting hurt. You know, just one thing after the next. Um, and I had another knee injury um, in a structured fire about a year before that I had to have surgery again to, um, my, my same me that I had surgery on the last time. So it's like, all right, you know, I got to figure out something else to do. I got to cut my losses. These injuries are literally killing me slowly, but surely, you know? Um, and yeah, so I retired out shortly after that, but, uh, yeah. So with, with the mental health journey, cause I want to tie it into, you know, world War peer support. Tell me about your mental health journey and how was that transition? Because what I see now with this unique kind of perspective that I've got listening to so many stories is that a lot of people struggle because they've identified as the firefighter, the cop, and, uh, and that's their tribe as well. So when they find themselves retired, you know, hurt, fired, whatever it ends up looking like, they're, you know, the bay doors closed behind them and now they're on their own. And some people that have found another tribe to, to transition into do well but a lot of people do seem to struggle so what was your transition out and was there a low either prior to that or after that and then can lead us through to you know the inception of worldwide peer support yeah so uh yeah i, I never really had uh, the low um believe it or not you know as involved as i was so i, I can kind of go back a little bit and then I'll fast forward kind of towards the end of my career. So um, somewhere in the middle, um, uh, we started these uh, FEMA task forces after uh, numerous hurricanes uh, in your neck of the woods in Florida. And um, so I got involved um, early on with uh, uh, FEMA task force three, which is out of Menlo park. Uh, Chief uh, Chaplain was uh, uh, our chief at the time of the task force. And, um, He's still a fire chief, even though he's a quadriplegic. He's a stud. I love that man. Really? He's awesome. Still Menlo Park fire chief. Yep, he is. And he's uh, he's older than I am by a couple of years. He's got me by a few years, but yeah. And he'd be an interesting guy to get on your show. In fact, you would love talking to him. Sounds like it. 
Yeah, so I went on the first deployment with uh, FEMA Task Force 3. It was Hurricane Aniki um, on the island of Kauai, Hawaii. And we flew in a uh, (laughs) – it would take me two hours to tell you the whole story, so I'm just going to do the highlights. So we flew in a a propellered um, aircraft uh, from an Air Force base in California with all of our gear in the center and all of us on both sides of the uh, aircraft. It's a military aircraft. And um, we had vehicles parked in the center and all our gear. And nobody was even thinking this is an uninsulated aircraft, so it's going to be colder than shit. We're all thinking we're going to Hawaii. So nobody's dressing, you know, in parkas and that kind of stuff. Uh, what I would have given for even a beanie back in those days, it would have been awesome. So, and this was not a, a, a pleasant, gentle, you know, commercial flight. This was in a prop plane, for Christ's sakes, across an ocean 2,500 miles from the coast of California. And, um, yeah, it was also flying into a hurricane. So it wasn't, it wasn't fun. <clears throat> and so guys are, you know, sick all around me. Everybody's freezing to death. Some of the guys, actually the smarter guys, I wasn't one of them, called into the cab of one of the trucks and shut the doors. You couldn't run the engine, obviously, but they would have released warm and then they were seat bolted in. So they were, you know, when we're getting buffeted around, they were getting thrown around this aircraft. So we finally land in the uh, Barber Coast and, uh, on Honolulu uh, near Waikiki. And, um, yeah, we, uh, we were there, we we're brand new FEMA team. So nobody even knew about us for the most part. And I think, uh, the government deployed us, but didn't, they forgot to tell anybody where we're coming. So we show up, the crew of us show up, um, at this Marine base and they're like, who are you guys? And so anyway, after some phone calls and some explaining, it's like, all right, we're going to give you guys the officer quarters. Um, and we're going to do recon on Kauai and see what's going on. You know, see if there's any rescuing that needs to be done. And our specialty is, you know, USAR, so urban search and rescue. But it goes into a lot more than that, more heavy rescue stuff, even hazmat and that kind of stuff, and uh, even recovery um, as uh, things kind of turned out later on down the road. But um, anyway, so it was like the best FEMA deployment ever because not only were we put up where we probably shouldn't have been put up in the officer's quarters, which included a full mess and a, a full stock bar. Um <laughs> And they had uh, the flying nurses from Washington State staying in the same building with us. So you have a bunch of beautiful nurses um, and a bunch of yeah, lowly firemen all putting the same building together with alcohol in, par- in paradise. And you throw in some alcohol, and it's just it's a, yeah, it's one of those mixes that yeah, it's everybody's fantasy, but it's also everybody's nightmare, right? Um, so that that without going into too many specifics, that was um, an interesting uh, interesting trip and yeah, interesting deployment. Uh, fortunately, we weren't needed as much as we thought, even though there was a lot of devastation and there just wasn't a lot of folks that uh, were in traps. So we were there for a couple of weeks, got sent home. Yeah, FEMA Task Force 3 has been on numerous, numerous deployments, uh, Oklahoma City, uh, Katrina, 9-11. Um, I missed some of them, fortunately, some of them I got involved with. Um, so kind of fast forwarding to 9-11 now, um, I was uh, captain on Engine 10. Uh, for Santa Clara County when it all went down. And um, I was uh, actually off of uh, Task Force 3 at the time. So I self-deployed with a bunch of other firefighters. And I spent uh, two weeks um, at Ground Zero. I spent uh, about five days at Ground Zero off and on. And then I helped out with uh, some of the resources for funeral services. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of funerals going on because, first off, there was no bodies uh, to be found for the most part. There There was... turnout coat pieces and that's how they identified the firefighters that were identifiable um 
and there was issues with that um, identification as well. Um, but it was just, it was a, yeah, one of those frantic, uh, depressing messes um, is the best way to put it. I mean, it was, it was like a Holocaust. It really was. I mean, you know, and it just, God bless the, you know, FDNY and all their surrounding jurisdictions that helped. They all tried like mad to save anyone. And that's what kind of drove them for quite a while on the pile is that they just wanted to save someone, you know, and there was a couple of tertiary saves that were uh, kind of uh, post incident um, that police officers and a few firefighters that were trapped in other buildings that they were able to, to rescue made live rescues. But everyone that was actually involved in the incident, you know, obviously perished. And so that's what drove them though, is to find somebody. And we're all rescuers. We all want to do the right thing. And there was people volunteering from all over the place that, you know, as I was getting ready to leave and go back home, there were people coming from all over the world pretty much to help out. And it went from a totally unorganized event to a very organized event towards the end there. And then, you know, it went on for months. The thing was smoldering for three months at least. Um, and yeah, just, you know, now it's a beautiful monument. I went back later. Um, and that, that was a uh, interesting times. I met a lot of good people there during that event. Um, and, uh, that all kind of spill into a, <laughs> a mental health uh, event that occurred later on that kind of got me involved with where I'm at right now. So, um, if you'd like, I can kind of talk about, uh, how this whole thing evolved. Yeah, please. Um, Cause I've pretty much talked about my career and a lot of the things that I had done, uh, during my involvement. Well, I hit on it just a tiny bit. So I was, um, towards the end of my career, I was, um, one of the captains that was in charge of special operations task force was Santa Clara County fire. And essentially it was after nine 11, um, this, uh, special operations task force started. And that's probably why I wasn't involved as much with uh, FEMA task force three, because I was super involved with our own special operations task force in house. And we had numerous rigs, all of our, uh, all of our folks were specially trained. Um, and I ended up, uh, handling the, uh, basically the hazmat Seaburn WMD, um, of end of the, uh, special operations task force. So I was a hazmat specialist as well. Um, ended up, uh, getting trained by the army, went, to, um, Dagaway, Utah for uh, special training, uh, basically weapons of mass destruction, uh, without telling you what we did there. A lot of interesting training, um, out Aniston, Alabama, Merck, Nevada. We did all training with, you know, anything and everything you could possibly imagine that a terrorist would ever, um, expose the general populace uh, to amass as many casualties as possible as the training that we had. And we had uh, unlimited resources. Uh, Homeland Security grants at that point were uh, numerous, and they were trying to give us money. That's how readily available it was back in those days. So training and equipment was great. And not so much anymore things, you know, never forget. Well, guess what? A lot of people forgot, especially the government, about 9-11 and what it uh, what what really the impact was in our nation and still is, especially on first responders. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of first responders that were there um, ended up, you know, perishing from different cancers uh, from that debris. I ended up, uh, ended up having asthma, which I never had before. Um, and I still have asthma um, to this day. And it's obviously it's a, it's a COPD thing. It's not going away anytime soon, but fortunately for me, I haven't had any, um, uh, internal cancers like uh, lung cancer and like that that most people have are a blood-borne cancer um, which is fortunate but um, yeah I kind of count my blessings 
So fast forward to when I retired, uh, you had mentioned earlier, you had a question about whether I went through, I guess, a quasi grieving process about not being employed in the fire service anymore. Well, I started a business um, before I got out of the fire service. Um, and uh, we were basically developing and selling uh, air monitoring equipment. Um, we ended up essentially giving that business up when it started to grow. And I didn't want to end up in Dubai or something like that, some area like that, to where that's where business was good at the time. And uh, so I uh, sold the business off. Uh, you probably have heard of Ray Systems. Uh, yes. A lot of monitoring. Yeah, the monitoring. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, we worked with them to help develop uh, instruments. And anyway, uh, sold that off, uh, got out of that. Um, and so I was pretty diversified at that point. And so, um, uh, I wasn't so much affected by the retirement as I was so busy doing other things. I was a state, uh, one of the lead instructors for the hazmat specialist program in the state of California. I operated the uh, facility out at uh, NASA DART at Moffett field. So I trained at NASA, not that I'm that smart, but you know, it sounds good on my resume. <laughs> And there's a, 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 a training site out there. It's developed just for USAR and HAZMAT, and it's uh, they spend over $20 million in props alone. So it's an incredible facility. And um, so I used to use that facility a lot to train uh, jurisdictions. That's when I was still uh, working actively in the fire service, and then even when I retired a little bit afterwards. But um, I kind of gave everything up. Um, and I'll tell you why I gave everything up. So um, this is right before I retired, too. I was sitting on my couch at home. It's my day off. Uh, my lovely new bride, uh, Jules, is uh, doing her thing in her office. She was working for Apple at the time, working out of the house. And I was watching some home improvement show on TV, just kind of vegging out, you know, which I tried to do in my days off and not do anything uh, related to the fire service uh, when I wanted to just kind of take a mental time out. That's what I'd do. So I'm watching some home improvement show and my cell phone rings. And it was a phone number that I wasn't familiar with, but it was a local area code. So I picked up. And it was a fire chief um, at Boulder Creek Fire, where I used to work when I was young. I like it emotional. And anyway, um, sorry about that. Don't, hey, um, don't, yeah. Do not apologize. I mean, this is what people need to hear is the raw emotion. Yeah. And so the fire chief tells me that uh, he goes, yeah, your brother's just been killed. And he just said, what a fucking waste. What a fucking waste. He kept repeating that. And it's like, what? I, I couldn't believe what I heard. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, I got the location of the accident. And he says, can you come here now? And so I said, absolutely. Um, I said, I have to tell my mom first who lived eight doors down from us. So, uh, so my brother, um, this is the same brother who had the open heart surgeries and, you know, had the broken femur, thanks to me. And, um, Subsequently, he was married, had uh, three kids, a uh, successful business. Um, he was a restaurateur and um, chef, went to culinary school, and was very successful with that. And um, Anyway, he had gotten home and just missed the minivan ride to the high school to his daughter's volleyball game. So he decided to hop on his motorcycle and ride to the high school to uh, attend the volleyball game. And my mom and um, her new visiting boyfriend from Canada um, decided to go as well. So they were there. And uh, since he missed the minivan ride, um, he hopped on his motorcycle and wasn't speeding because a UPS driver was right behind him. But um, he was going down the road and the van was a straightaway on a windy road. And uh, he was going uh, 
essentially southbound. This this van was going to take a northbound turn onto this little straightaway of this highway and uh, saw Mike coming on his motorcycle. And so he slammed on his brakes kind of mid, mid lane. And at the last second, instead of just saying stop, the guy took off and turned left right in front of my brother. And my brother uh, hit the side of the van and died instantly, transected his aorta. So I had to break the news to my mom uh, moments later, and um, I drove to the scene. Um, and just imagine that. I still, to this day, remember what everyone was wearing. I remember the smell in the air. Uh, I remember the outline of my brother's body. I remember a lot. Um, dealt with that. Dealt with his family. Dealt with my family. Um, uh, I was so... Yeah, just in a different space. I um, interviewed the guy that uh, pulled the van out. You know, I wasn't blaming him. I wasn't going to be violent with him, but I wanted to know everything that happened uh, that that day and on that scene. Interviewed the paramedics that were there. Interviewed the fire chief that called me. Talked to the first arriving crew on scene. Um, talked to the witnesses. And um, yeah, I even laid in the area to where my my brother had died and looked straight up and saw what he saw in his last uh, couple of uh, minutes on this earth. And, um, it was very moving, very difficult time for me to, um, get through. And, um, if anything's going to push you over the edge, the, uh, <laughs> supposed edge, that was it. Um, you know, after all I'd done and all I'd seen and all the traumas that I've gone through in my life, that was the most, uh, heinous trauma I've ever had to deal with. And it wasn't only because, you know, he was my brother, but it was the family um, element as well. Dealing with his family, my family, and just the trauma uh, in the whole community um, was just tremendous. Um, and, yeah, it just the weight of that uh, I still have on my shoulders in, in a certain respect. And I told my brother, too, on his motorcycle, I said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you're going to die in that damn thing one of these days. And, you know, he didn't listen. <laughs> And unfortunately died on that thing. So I, yeah, I don't ride motorcycles anymore either, but, um, that was a difficult trauma to get over. And, uh, so fast forwarding, um, to a few years after I had retired, I had moved, um, up to Truckee, California, Lake Tahoe area. And we lived there part time. So, you know, I, um, yeah, as, uh, rough as my life has been in so many ways. I, I live a, a blessed life now. I have an incredible wife, uh, Jules, and even though I have uh, sons that are in their mid and late 30s and I have granddaughters, I also have an eight-year-old daughter, Ella, uh, who is, is uh, yeah, very independent. And uh, as much as I love her, she uh, she's a fiery redhead, so you are <laughs> fiery redheads. <laughs> uh, so she makes me feel very young at times and very old at times. It depends on the situation, so... Um, yeah, so fast forwarding. So every, uh, nine 11. So now I'm living up in Truckee, California. And once again, I was so very diversified, got into politics, um, became the vice president of, uh, uh, Donner association. It's, um, the biggest HOA, one of the, except for a couple in Florida, one of the biggest, uh, HOAs in the United States. And anyway, they have a $23 million plus budget a year, 700 employees. I was the vice president of this big corporation that kind of took my mind off of things. Um, and then I also got into uh, avalanche control, explosives. You know, I kind of always been intrigued by explosives anyway. And, um, yeah, one of my uh, old friends that I got in the ski patrol with as a young, young lad way back when, um, uh, he 
knew I was retired and moved up and, uh, I was actually doing, I was the head ski patroller for, um, a place called Royal Gorge, which is uh, connected to a, a ski area called Sugar Bowl up in the Sierra Nevada. It's up by Lake Tahoe, North Lake Tahoe, by Squaw Valley, Alpine Meadows, uh, North Star, all these places you probably have heard of. Um, and anyway, uh, he found out I was uh, on these little skinny skis, and he's come, and he's from New York, and he's like, Jeff, what the hell are you doing on those skinny skis? He goes, you come over work for me, and you get to blow shit up. And I'm going, so Roy signed. So he goes, <laughs> It's <laughs> the same corporation that owns both places. Like, you got to find your replacement. I'm doing the best, and he's going to probably appreciate that because I sound sure. just like him. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> nailing it. <out. laughs> but, but there's a lot of lot more f bombs you'd be using right now than I'm using. But uh, yeah, anyway, I went over and worked for, for him for four seasons. And my last season with him, um, I got caught up in an avalanche that I, you know, caused uh, by throwing a bomb and. Um, ended up blowing out my knee, my good knee, and I had a bunch of micro fractures in my femur, and and yeah, so that didn't end well. But uh, yeah, I skied out, um, and I kind of gimped through that rest of that season until I couldn't walk anymore. And finally, it's like I gotta get this thing fixed. So I had both of my knees replaced. <clears throat> so yeah, and and the story there, that was best thing I ever did with my knees. But um, still. Um, every 9-11, um, a guy I was at 9-11 with, um, Steve, uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's a great man, um, retired fireman, too. He was at 9-11. Uh, we always toast 9-11, you know, and the 343 brothers and sisters that we lost there. And we'd done it for years, and he had been gone uh, during 9-11. Um, this would, would have been a few years back. Um and uh, actually, sorry, this had actually been a year ago, um, 9-11. And this, um, this, this has probably been the shortest yet longest year of my life. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I think a lot of people so feel the happened. same way. Yeah, yeah, with COVID and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so anyway, he came back from a camping trip in September, a little bit later. And uh, my wife had just lost her parents and she was going through some, some – this is my, my mental breakdown, if you want to call it that. Um, she had been going through all kinds of stuff and she had to go back to the Midwest um, to take care of family things. And I was home holding down the fort with COVID and a kid, you know, self-schooling from home and all that fun stuff as we all went through. And, um, yeah, so I stopped by his house and had one too many shots of tequila. Well, I only lived two blocks away from the guy. So did the stupid thing. Instead of staggering home, I, I got in my truck and drove uh, about five miles an hour in a 25-mile-hour zone and essentially got arrested for driving too slow. I didn't crash, didn't hurt anybody. Um, and uh, so they thought I was under the influence. So um, there was a gal that called the police. Um, I was detained. Um, essentially that was like the lowest point in my life. Um, the wife essentially said, you know, you need to get out for your PTSD. Cause before that I was having all kinds of nightmares. I was waking up in cold sweats and, um, I couldn't sleep. Um, I was self-medicating with alcohol at times and, um, having a lot of dreams about uh, a lot of different events um, that happened in the fire service. And, um, I just couldn't get over my brother's death. I was having the damnedest time with that. And, this was like the, the culmination of so many different traumatic events to where I just finally lost it, you know, and just, I couldn't deal. And, uh, with the ultimatum that my wife gave me, thank God she saved my life. I mean, I honest to God wouldn't be here right now. If it wasn't for her, I would be dead. There's no doubt about it. 
um, you know, a few suicidal ideations, things of that nature. Uh, never attempted suicide, but um, thought about it a few times and just thought I was being a burden on, you know, before that I was seeing a therapist, but it was way too little treatment, way too late uh, for PTSD. He was diagnosed and uh, was only seeing her once a week and I had just started seeing her. And this whole thing went down and it was like the straw that, you know, broke everybody's back. And so I reached out um, to an organization called Next Rung. You probably heard of yep. Next Rung. Blake's been on yep. here. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we're actually affiliate. Uh, we're affiliates now. We help them. They help us all the time. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a great it's a great relationship. And so, uh, yeah, I ended up uh, getting a referral to the uh, COE, Center of Excellence. Uh, you have to be a union member, whether you're retired or active, uh, which I was for many, many years. And so I went to uh, Upper Marlboro, Maryland, in the crux of COVID, <laughs> flying to Maryland, which was fine. Um, that was the least of my worries at that time. Um, was treated there, spent 34 days in treatment at uh, the Center of Excellence. And during that stay, um, I did all kinds of stuff, great work on uh, my traumas. And I, I was pretty amazed, actually. And when I first got there, I was reluctant, you know, like everybody's going to be kind of an old school guy, suck it up, buttercup, you know. And I was the same mentality for many, many years. I'm guilty of it as well. And uh, I figured, you know, if I had to go through it, everyone else should be going through it too. Well, I don't feel that way anymore at all. I'm <laughs> the total opposite. And um, much like when I started to help start the paramedic program and, um, you know, got involved with special operations, you know, I see that there's a, a dire need for firefighters and EMS workers and police officers too. You know, God bless them for what they do. Um, but we can only help so many people. And I saw what I went through. And saw, you know, 40 other brothers and sisters at the facility um, coming in as train wrecks like I was when I first got there. And then have this, uh, it's hard to describe. And anyone you talk to that's been through it, or they'll tell you kind of the same thing. Um, it's, uh, it's life uh, transformative. It is uh, something that even a hardened guy like myself uh, can go through there and have his life change from um, pretty much thinking it's all over to you want to call it born again uh, into life, uh, into helping others, um, finding my 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 really my cause and what I what I can do to help my brothers and sisters in the fire service and EMS, and um, what I've been put on this earth for. I think ultimately because it's it's helping people in a different way than I'm ever used to helping anyone. But I've been very successful in helping lots of folks, which has been great. It's it's like a gift that's been given me really, and so it's like a new lease on life, and you know and um, I never would consider myself a substance abuser. I did self-medicate with alcohol. Um, and you know, I don't use alcohol at all anymore because I don't want my, my thoughts to be clouded at all. Um, I don't take, uh, much medication at all, uh, primarily, you know, stuff for my ibuprofen or the counter stuff for my, my metal parts that ache and throb every now and again. Um, but that's about it. Yeah. I got out of the uh, center of excellence, but before I got out, they had a, um, a thing to where it was uh, essentially um, veterans from uh, the center that started a, uh, a peer group um, and they were doing Zoom meetings because of COVID. They couldn't come talk in person. So they were doing Zoom meetings at the center once a week. And so I got involved with that. And so this is actually a great idea. And you're talking to folks that have been in this program. They got out of the program. They're talking about how they're doing. And so when I uh, went home from the center, 
it was a whole nother thing. It was, uh, yeah, um, you know, getting the wife, because uh, I was in all this intensive therapy, which worked, you know, tremendously. I came back essentially the same Jeff, but I was repaired in so many ways and had all these new tools. And my poor wife is at home, you know, fitting for herself and dealing with COVID still. And I came home fixed and ready to go. And she's like, what the hell? <laughs> I haven't had anything. This sucks, you know? So it took, it took a few months uh, of hard work um, and a lot of effort on both of our parts to get through um, what we got through. And, and now our relationship's stronger than it's ever been, without doubt. Um, love her dearly. And uh, she still loves me for whatever reason. So she still st- sticks around and she's at my side. Now she uh, she hears me dealing with other uh, troubled firefighters and um, she sees day to day how we're helping firefighters and we, we save lives and there's absolutely no doubt about that. And it's unfortunately with uh, so many um, pressures, uh, not only on the job, but outside of the job, it's pushed a lot of uh, firefighters and first responders in general to that point of suicide and suicide has gone up exponentially in the last couple of years. And it's so unfortunate because in our business now we hear about suicides pretty much on a weekly basis some of the folks that uh, do commit suicide are successful and we've worked with them it just was too little too late and it's just so unfortunate and it's so avoidable so preventable and uh, so we started this grassroots organization when I got out myself and a couple of other folks I'll just uh, throw out some names because it's important that people know them Skip Akaman from yeah from uh, Indiana um, we got uh, Tammy Mastin Davis uh, from Baltimore, and we got uh, Chuck Evans. He's from uh, PA, and um, all great people from across the country. Um, we ended up organizing uh, into a corporation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and uh, we became official uh, back uh, in January of 2021. Uh, got our IRS approval for 501c3 um, just in the last few months. Um, probably, actually, it's been longer than that now. It's probably been four or five months ago. Um, and our, our business is booming, uh, unfortunately. Uh, it's fortunate that we're, we're there because um, if you're familiar with Nextrung, and for those listening are familiar with Nextrung, they essentially have a, a list of vetted providers um, therapists, clinicians, and uh, some treatment centers that they can refer you to. So if you're in crises, you can call them at their number. You can find them online as well as us, and they will find you a vetted therapist. If they have to take, you know, all night to find one for you, they will find one for you. And there'll be a first responder therapist. It's not going to be just any therapist. And they'll vet, make sure that they're a vetted therapist, that they're good at what they do, and they specialize in treating first responders. Um and so that kind of in a nutshell is what we do, but we decided to, uh, to provide a lot more service than just uh, doing the vetting. So we are Worldwide Peer Support. You can see us online, worldwidepeersupport.org. Um, our website's been running for uh, quite some time now, um, and it tells about all the services that we offer. So we offer peer support. Um, we have uh, certified uh, peer support folks that run those Zoom meetings. Um, we do those three times a week. And if you get on our front page at the bottom and see a link, you just click on it. And it's uh, Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays every week. And it's 8 o'clock Eastern, 8 to 9. Sometimes they run longer, uh, depending on the, on the amount of folks uh, that we get on those uh, Zoom meetings. 
And we get a lot of uh, clients that uh, are brothers and sisters that uh, are in really uh, dire need of help. And so we have a list of vetted uh, clinicians as well. And if we can't find them a clinician, we'll, we'll go through Next Rung or also uh, Robert Ariad at uh, Skulls for Hope is another great organization. But uh, amongst all of us, we will find you help if you need help. And we'll get to the appropriate help no matter where you're from. And so we do that. We also offer family services because we all know that where the failure comes in most treatment modalities is that the family is not incorporated in your treatment. So, you know, you're like, I just brought up my wife, you know, she had been sitting at home while I was in this extensive uh, therapy for 34 days and she might've saw a therapist twice. And so now we have fam family support and we offer therapy to family members as well. Loved ones. It doesn't matter who wants to contact us. They meet every Thursday on a zoom link as well, which is on our front page of our website. And uh, we've got uh, some trained folks and also experienced uh, spouses that uh, run that program, which is great. And there's a ton of resources for families on there as well. And then probably the best thing that we've got going for us is we have uh, vetted facilities just for first responders across the nation. So we have several that we use and uh, we partnered with. Um, and we are 100% volunteer and we operate strictly on and solely on donations. And so we're not paid. However, this is more of a full-time job than I've ever had in my life. It is 365, you know, it's 24 seven. It is um, at all times, whether I'm on the beach, whether I'm skiing, whether I'm hiking, whether it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I'm on the phone or texting or working with uh, either a client or a brother and sister that are trying to get the treatment or the facility facilitating uh, their their treatment or uh, their arrival or their departure or whatever the case is uh, we help out and we have scholarships so we have over a half million dollars well over a half million dollars in scholarships for either partial scholarship for treatment or a full scholarship this is for inpatient treatment so if you are in crises and you need help for any sort of substance abuse and or mental health issue we are there to help you and we will bend over backwards and make sure you get the right help. And it helps 99% of the time, the folks that go through these treatment centers come out with tools, they're renewed, they don't have the same ideations they had, and whatever issues they had, it's treatable. And if they were going to possibly take their own lives, that's preventable. And we work with them closely after they get out. We offer and provide peer support, whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, I'm on the phone a lot, or it's through the Zoom meetings with a group of firefighters and EMS professionals. Uh, we meet and we, we uh, support one another and we do whatever it takes to, to help folks out. So here in a, yeah, it's, it's been great. So yeah, the last couple of days, you know, this is, you know, most of our uh, stories are success stories and people do great, but there's always the hard case. And I just was dealing with a hard case up until this morning to where got a firefighter um, from the East Coast that had issues. And, um, you know, if he were to need reach out to me right now, I would fly and pick him up personally and bring him to treatment. I and mean, that's what we do. But um, got him into a facility and he has so many issues. He checked himself out. Uh, he was gone for about 24 hours, um, got drunk. Police picked him up and he went back to the facility, sobered up, and now he checked himself out again. So, you know, it is what it is. We, we can only do so much.
Um, but we're here 24-7, 365 to everyone out there that's listening. If you know someone that needs help, please look us up, worldwidepeersupport.org. And my personal phone number is on there along with others. If you look under contacts in the back, you can contact any one of us. There's also a toll-free number on there you can call 24-7 and somebody will pick up. So we're always there for you. So if you're in crises, you need help no matter what it is. And we've had calls for all kinds of stuff. Um, we'll help you out. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, Jeff, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, to me, what makes your what you're doing now with Worldwide's Peer Support so important is when people have heard your career, the physical injuries you've been through, some of the emotional traumas you've been through. Hopefully, everyone listening can relate. And, you know, you were able to come out the other side. And it's great to hear the center of excellence, you know, was was the right fit. And I think that's a huge thing. I hope that that guy that left again, that he finds whatever the right fit is, whether it's Save a Warrior, whether it's, you know, EMDR with a counselor, whether it's, um, you know, some sort of addiction facility. But the more resources there are, the more chance there is of someone finding the right fit. I don't believe that there's a one fit, you know, one size fits all no. for this. Um, absolutely not. But what you're doing, what Blake's doing with, with Next Rung, I think is absolutely invaluable. So I just want to say thank you for telling your story. Thank you for transitioning from the fire service and continuing to, to help, continuing that mission. And thank you for just taking two hours to tell your story today. Yeah, it's been a real honor and privilege without that, James. And I appreciate you too. I've heard several of your guests and you're inspirational and so are they. And the story needs to get out, you know, and it's one of those things to where uh, mental health, uh, there's always been a stigma attached to that. And we really try to break down that barrier of there being a stigma. And guys like myself and numerous others um, that tell their story openly. And there's, I'm not ashamed of anything. You know, I went through it. Uh, everybody that's involved with this have, have gone through it. And we've all come out uh, the better person on the other side. You know, and we just hope and pray that uh, we can offer services and help as many as we can because – like I said, we hate to see people suffer, especially our own brothers and sisters. And so, you know, if we can save one more life, we do it on a daily basis. You know, God, God bless us all. We, we, we will do our darndest to, to do that. So, yeah, just please look us up. That's all I got to say. You know, if you know anybody out there that's hurting right now that needs help at any level, just uh, worldwidepeersupport.org.